Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On today's episode, we're joined by Aralis Hernandez, the Vice President for Print of the National Association of Hispanic Journalists and a reporter for the Washington Post. The National Association of Hispanic Journalists, the NAHJ, is the largest organization of Latino journalists in the United States dedicated to the recognition and professional advancement of Hispanics in the news industry. Their mission is to increase the number of Latinos in the newsrooms and to work toward fair and accurate representation of Latinos in the news media. You can find them at nahj.org. Aralise has been with the Washington Post since 2014. She currently covers the U.S.-Mexico border, covering stories about immigration, the unique region and culture of the borderlands, and the state of Texas more broadly. Uh, an example of a piece that she wrote from December, a co-written article, Unwinding Trump's Asylum Policy Will Be Major Challenge for Biden. And we'll get into her writing in a little bit. She's previously covered Puerto Rico and Hurricane Maria, spent time in Venezuela, and been a reporter at the Orlando Sentinel, where she covered the death of Trayvon Martin, and is also the co-director of the AAJA J-Camp, a five-day intensive program for high school students serious about entering the profession. That's a lot. All right. Welcome. How are you? I'm great. I'm, I'm glad to be here. I want to talk first about the NAHJ. So uh, tell me more about it in a very broad sense and then your role within the organization. Yeah, so the, the National Association of Hispanic Journalists is an organization founded in 1984 to increase the representation of uh, Hispanics and Latinos in the newsroom, but to also uh, move us up into positions of, of leadership, uh, creating space for uh, Latinos in, in, in those journalism spaces, as well as increasing representation in the coverage. Uh, so. We are uh, dedicated to seeing, as our hashtag says, more Latinos in news and, and making sure that we move up into leadership positions. So explain your role uh, and how you came to be vice president. Yeah, uh, as vice president of print, I represent uh, you know, that segment of our 3,000 plus membership that works in, in print media, not exclusively because most of us now uh, you know, are digital online uh, folks. But, for, but I represent then in terms of any needs that should come forward, uh, developing ideas for uh, fellowships or opportunities that might come up for personal development for our members uh, and overseeing sort of, you know, doing the boring fiduciary responsibilities of managing a nonprofit. So this vision that's in place for the group, which is uh, the president we should mention is Nora Lopez. Uh, how is this going to be executed over time? We have a lot of things that are coming up together. We have a new board. Uh, we have some members that came from the previous board. We just had our elections uh, and we're coming together here in the new year to sort of devise strategies for that. Our executive director, Alberto Mendoza, has been terrific in fundraising for us, in helping us develop programs. We have something called NextGen Initiatives, which is run by one of our staff members, Leslie Ann Frank, which is all about scholarships and internships opportunities. We just launched a big uh, grad school opportunity, free tuition uh, with NYU and in partnership with NAHJ to, to give folks an opportunity to, to study journalism as, as a master's degree uh, and to move forward from there. So uh, we're looking at our conference that is coming up. It'll be virtual this year. We had planned for it to be in Miami or to return to Miami, but unfortunately uh, the pandemic had other plans. And so uh, it's developing those programs so that we can provide the training and the uh, sort of connections that people need in order to move forward in the industry. 
From an AHJ press release uh, recently, the current pandemic and resulting recession has accelerated trends that have statistically proven to be a deterrent to the rise in diversity and inclusion and additionally heightens the risk of layoffs involving journalists of color. Lower ranking positions in newsrooms show greater racial, ethnic, and gender diversity, but are also the jobs most often impacted by collapsing news organizations. All right, so one, how bad is this? It's getting pretty bad. I mean, it, it, it's you hear stories about Americans going hungry, you know, lines out of food banks. Well, that stuff has ripple effects into our news industry, right? And when the economy contracts, that limits the amount of revenues and fund, uh, excuse me, and advertising uh, revenue that's out there for smaller news organizations to survive, even if they're nonprofit newsrooms, sort of those pools of money shrink. And what we're seeing and what we have seen uh, across the industry that in these smaller communities where these newspapers are vital, newspapers and news television stations, it is unfortunately people of color who often are losing these jobs. Uh, we had an example of this, you know, recently in Arizona, uh, where a couple of our members lost their jobs because of a sort of wave of buyouts and, and layoffs that are taking place. You also have the contracting of the industry and, and you have these sort of venture capital firms that have come in to, it, you know, I guess in some people's views, save the, the, the business aspect of it, but end up cutting a lot of those positions. I think you've seen this in Cincinnati and Cleveland and other places. And again, those entry-level jobs that are typically or in, increasingly staffed by people of color are the first ones to go. All right. So what's the timetable for trying to improve upon this? Timetable. That's an interesting question. I mean, I, trying to move on it as soon as possible, right? Figuring out ways we can work with newsrooms, uh, meeting with leadership to try and figure out what are some solutions, whether it's, you know, grant funded positions, working with uh, some of our big funders, such as the Knight Foundation, the Ford Foundation, to create models, not unlike uh, Report for America, which is one of these organizations that has had a huge role in sending, you know, people of color, particularly Latinos and Hispanics, into communities where there previously wasn't sort of a robust or even any <laughs> journalism presence. Uh, I can think of one in my community, specifically Maria Mendez, who's, a, 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 I think, a, a new or sort of young journalist who's now covering Laredo, Texas, for Report for America and doing it in, through public radio. Um, another thing that I found on the website, this one was interesting to me and I think is a part of a broader discussion. The NAHJ will ask newsrooms to stop labeling people of color as minorities. For too long, the term minority has referred to groups that are outnumbered by non-Hispanic whites. The term is not accurate when describing non-white communities. Accurate phrases depend on the context uh, or the group. Appropriate terminology includes communities of color, marginalized communities, underprivileged, or even emerging majority when referencing statistics and data. What is the response to this, Ben? I think for the most part, people have embraced it. We haven't actually had too much pushback. I mean, we're journalists, right? We agonize over language and words and, and accuracy. And this simply is just not an accurate term for so many communities across this country. Uh, I'm based here in, in San Antonio, Texas, and it's definitely not an accurate term for a community that has you know, an immense amount of influence on uh, the culture and, and the new space of, of, of a place, right? So far, we have not had that much pushback, but although I think we need to do, make more of an effort as an organization to make sure that this message penetrates more deeply. I have not, you know, when I, in my own newsroom space and whenever we do see it, we do reach out to those organizations and say, hey, this is, this is not not the term. <laughs> right. It, it's, it's interesting because I read it, I think I read the release probably shortly after it came out and it, 
it kind of registered with me, but there's so much going on that it didn't necessarily stick. And then I read it again when I, uh, when I was doing the prep to talk to the, the NAHJ. And since then, now I'm ultra conscious of it. And I feel like I hear it. Uh, I still hear it a, a lot. You got, I think you have a ways to go on that one. It's challenging to overcome what are, I guess, norms for people that have been established for centuries. Do you, do you have any suggestions on how to, to, to go about that? Look, I think we're on the vanguard of a moment, you know, stemming from some of the movements of this past summer, this past year, to make the case, right? Like to, to break with these habits. This is not going to be easy. People are, you know, are resistant to change generally. <laughs> Just think of, I can think of my father and he can't even stand it when I move like a painting from the wall and replace it with something new, right? Like this change is difficult. And when something has become ingrained and part of your habit and, and your way of sort of instinctively referring to something, you know, that, that becomes gold. And so, you know, there has to be concerted effort. I think probably in partnership, NHJ cannot do this on its own. Uh, you know, we are, we are the largest organization of our kind, but, you know, we're still small in comparison to getting a message like this out. So partnering with folks and, and sort of lending our voice to what this moment is and rethinking the kind of language that we use as an industry and as a people to refer to people who are marginalized in parts of communities that we generally don't hear about in news coverage. I can tell you that I have, uh, I have put a halt to my usage of the term. And I think that most people, it's not ill-intentioned that they're necessarily using it. It's more just a lack of understanding of the, the facts of the situation. Right. So with that, I want to segue into something that sort of resembles this. When I was at ESPN, the topic of what can I do to be cultural, culturally sensitive to the Hispanic audience, uh, one thing that was presented to us at one point was the use of accent marks in names and certainly working on pronunciations. ESPN has a, uh, had a baseball broadcaster, John Miller, who really took the time and he got names. He was exact in his work in trying to make sure that he got the Latino names correct and making sure the proper and our group was uh, worked hard on integrating proper accent marks. And there was resistance from a practical perspective because it took longer because you didn't know the keystrokes and you didn't know where necessarily to, to find the information. But you really couldn't argue it any other way when someone said, well, if you don't have it, it's wrong. And over time, there was compliance, which is, I think, what you're going for here. So along the lines of that, is there anything that someone like me, 45-year-old white male podcast host and non-management person at work handling content can do to assist the NAHJ cause? Well, yeah. No, first of all, you, you can join. <laughs> we are not an organization by any means uh, and, and support our cause. But also, you know, listening and giving space to not just Latinos or Hispanics, but, you know, people of color when they say that, you know, a particular issue, say, for example, like the minority issue, right? Like a using that term, listening, and to all the reasons for why that is. When I talk about giving space, that means, um, so particularly in, in my position, right, whenever, you know, there is someone that, I work a lot with students, high school and college students, and so making space for someone means giving of your time to walk them through a particular situation that they might have in career. It means making the connection to someone who can help them get to that next step in their career. It means recommending them for jobs and giving their names to hiring managers or people that you know um, who have influence in those spaces. I think there's, you know, it, it's being a champion for, for someone else. And in this case, being a champion for, you know, a, a Hispanic journalist or Latino journalist. 
One of the things that uh, one of the former baseball players that worked at ESPN uh, is Latino said to us was learn the culture, learn, learn why when you're greeted, why you're greeted in the manner that you're greeted with an aggressive handshake and a, and a very, uh, uh, a lot of concern for how your family was doing and things of that sort. And it just seems like there are so many little things. Um, is there an example maybe from, from your life of a little thing that someone did that helped your relationship with them as you were coming through? Look, I think this is easy. I yep. mean, what makes for decent, wholesome relationships? That's how you should treat people. And, yep. and with like that has made the difference. Um, I, in my very first internship, at a New York Times regional paper, when there were New York Times regional paper, which is the Star News in Wilmington, North Carolina, you know, I had a, an older, you know, more veteran journalist in the newsroom basically take me under her wing and take me to every single police scene, every single event, even if I myself wasn't going to have a byline on that story, to watch her do her job and to listen to the kinds of questions that she was asking for. So by the time that internship was over, the end of summer, I knew how to do all kinds of things. Things. And I, you know, I basically copied her way of, you know, checking herself, printing out stories uh, before you send it to the editor and, and underlining and checking for accuracy. You know, it's just, it, these are very, very basic things. In every step of my career, there has been someone who at the very least just gave me an opportunity to talk to them one-on-one -on -one and to express myself without feeling judged or, you know, um, you know, put down in any way. And it, this, this is very simple, like basic human beings type things. I want to talk about one other uh, initiative of the NAHJ. Can you explain what is uh, Palabra? Yeah, so Palabra is a freelancing, a freelance publishing platform. And basically, this is an opportunity for in response to uh, a need that was expressed by our members, particularly those who are freelance who have been laid off. Uh, in, in the past decade or so to have a space where they could showcase their work um, and we do, and, and Palabra sort of grew out of that, right? And the idea is to specifically showcase uh, stories about minority communities, I used it, right? Like communities of color, right? Um, to, uh, to highlight specific issues. And in some cases we partner with organizations. I think my, the Miami Herald was one of those uh, to, to publish these investigations. And so basically it's an outlet for our members to keep producing and getting paid for that work, but to also have a place where they could show hiring managers that, you know, I've been busy. This is the stuff that I've been doing, um, that it's professionally edited um, and, and it's something that we hope to grow. One point of pride for uh, the president, Nora Lopez, I, I read uh, an interview where she brought this up. Uh, the board of the NAHJ is three quarters women. Um, what are, uh, tell us a little bit more about the, the board and what are the, the traits that, uh, that the board possesses that the board wants to be known for? Yeah, no, I think this is probably, um, I, I don't have the numbers, but from my very limited point of view, this is probably one of the most diverse uh, boards that we've had in terms of gender, <laughs> or at least in, in that way and from in regionally as, as well. Um, we have, board members all from Puerto Rico to Florida to California to, to here in Texas. Uh, and so we're covering a large swath of Latinidad, if you will, uh, in this country. And, and not just English, you know, English language folks. Like a lot of us do work in English language media, but we have a, a pretty substantial contingent and, and our student leader also of uh, folks who works exclusively in Spanish language media, which is something, again, has been growing within our membership as a growing area of interest and attention uh, that we need to pay 
Um, what are we proud of as a board? I think, um, you know, we came in, those of us who were elected with a mandate to bring more accountability to the, to the organization. It's a very old organization, uh, you know, 30 plus years, and there's some tweaking that needs to be done in some of the machinery. And so, you know, that's something that we're hoping to do and to, you know, move to pass 3,000 members, but to make the organization more relevant to the, you know, changing experiences of journalism, uh, journalists in this country. What does success look like for the group in the future? I think continued growth, it, building sort of a more of a community for our members so that they feel like they can plug in, get refreshed and get what they need, both at a professional level and an emotional and personal level. Um, I think it means growing our scholarships funds. We, right now we give $125,000 in scholarships. I myself was a one-time recipient. It saved me from dropping out of college <laughs> one, one semester I didn't have enough money. Um, and, and so we want to grow that as well as uh, sort of um, increase the number of partnerships that NAHJ has with some of the affiliate organizations uh, like AAJ, the Asian American Journalists Association, National Association of Black Journalists, the Society of Professional Journalists, but also fellowships that render like career changing opportunities for our members uh, that are mid-career or upper level. We wanna see more Latinos in management positions. I mean, we were buoyed recently by some moves that MSNBC has made as well as CBS, uh, Ingrid Cyprian Matthews, for example, uh, was just promoted uh, to the head of the DC Bureau. These are things that we wanna see and continue, want to continue to encourage with our media partners, as well as you hold them accountable when, uh, when things are not as they possibly should or are not meeting the goals that they set for diversity inclusion. Are there any other initiatives that you would like to bring up that the NAHJ is working on? We've been working very closely with press freedom advocates on the issue of uh, I visas, which are under the Trump administration that have been proposed restrictions for foreign correspondents uh, who we have quite a few members who are foreign correspondents from Latin America and Spain uh, who work in agencies here in the US and, and that's a major issue for us. And so we're working with press freedom advocates to make sure that these I-Visa restrictions are reversed uh, under a Biden administration um, and, and keeping a close eye on those threats of press freedom across the globe. You know, Mexico, this was another terrible year for Mexican journalists. And we're looking at strengthening our ties in general to Latin American, um, you know, journalism organizations to see how we can support them um, and, and, and sort of learn and exchange ideas to be able to buoy, you know, watchdog journalism on both sides of the border. Okay, with that, let's segue to your uh, time with the Washington Post. Uh, explain to us in greater depth what you cover. Oh, that's an excellent question. It's pretty much <laughs> since the pandemic. <laughs> I came here about 15 months ago uh, to Texas to cover the U.S. southern border uh, because of all that was happening with uh, the Trump administration and some of the policies and rules that were changing with regards to migrants. Uh, it's been, you know, the Trump administration has presided over a historic number of immigrants, migrants coming to across the border. So initially that was the plan. And then uh, in January, earthquakes hit Puerto Rico, which is where I'm from originally. And I was out there for a month. And when I came back, there was a virus running amok <laughs> in this country. So I basically been covering uh, anything having to do with coronavirus here in Texas. The, the election covered some stories about all of the the talk about Latino, the Latino vote here in Texas. Um, and basically 
anything that has come up, I've covered. I've become a generalist uh, without, you know, meaning to, but it's been, it's been a fun ride so far. One example, a story headlined, why Texas's overwhelmingly Latino Rio Grande Valley turned toward Trump. The bluest of blue counties, Zapata County, flipped to President Trump. And that gets to a point of discussion about the election just in general. Can you give us, uh, first of all, what your experience was like covering particularly the first five, six days of it? Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> it was tiring. It was, I mean, every emotion you can think of, I sort of went through this, uh, this wave of, um, you know, emotions. But so prior to this, I had only uh, covered largely one party states, Maryland, given, that are Democratic, right? I had never been or covered an election in a place where Republicans dominate uh, the politics here. And so I was very curious. I was hearing a lot from Democrats about Texas turning blue and you know, they were going to have major success. And they did, to be honest with you, like Texas uh, Democrats did do well, Democratic voters in the cities and in large communities and, you know, sort of narrowed that uh, gulf between the two top ticket uh, candidates, Democratic and Republican. But yeah, no, we had this, this, this situation uh, in South Texas that got a lot of attention, perhaps more attention than it should have <laughs> because of the gains that Democrats made across the state. But I think it largely, it speaks to what a theme of, of my career is reporting, which having to do with the fact that, you know, Latinos are not monolithic. We are not a racial group. We are an ethnic group there. And there are 20 plus countries that are of origin that are represented in the heritage of Latinos in this country. Um, and they're all kinds of factors. There are people who you might think they have a last name of Gonzalez and might assume that they, they identify as Latino and they might not uh, because everyone's story different. And I think wh what, if anything, for those of us who are Latinos and are in journalism, we've been saying this a long time. You can't put us in the same box. We're super complicated. You can't, you know, this is not how you understand or approach the Latino community. If there is a Latino community um, and, you know, unraveling that and, and diving deeper in that, I think in the next year will be a lot of fun for, for those of us who do this kind of coverage at the national level. And that's certainly something where journalists can team up with the educators in order to better uh, educate people about things like that. Because I heard, uh, listening to NPR uh, a good amount over the last two months, I've heard a lot of discussion on that very topic. And uh, it certainly seems like something that needs to be brought to uh, people's attention. Is that the biggest misconception that journalists need to do a better job of addressing? Is it related to the presidential election and Latinas? I don't know if it's the biggest misconception, but it certainly leads to a lot of misconceptions about uh, the, the community. I think there is going to be a lot of, you know, pontificating and, and uh, about you know, whether there is such thing as a Latino vote, there are practical, like political organizing reasons for why, for an argument for that in the other sense, because it's such divergent identities. Um, you know, there's, there's reason to believe that, that that's not a real thing, but uh, I will be there for, and our members will be there for that debate. I think it's nothing new to us. Let's be clear, this is to us who've been doing this work for, for quite some time. Um, and it's, it's, I think, a little surprising that it got the amount of attention that it did this year. But, you know, watch the demographics the people who uh, identify as Latino or having Latino heritage or, or roots in Latin America are, you know, very quickly becoming one of the largest groups in this country, if not already uh, the largest group, uh, non-white group in this country. Is there a story that you've worked on in, say, the last 
month or so that you're particularly proud of? It's, it's been a whirlwind of a year. And uh, I've, I've had a lot of stories that like pulled my heart out. I think there was a piece that I did. Uh, the Rio Grande Valley here in Texas has my heart. It's a, it's a magical, you know, sort of wonderful place uh, with an amazing and rich and complicated culture. And when coronavirus started ravaging those communities, uh, many of whom are multi-generational households where, um, you know, kids were going to school, they were coming home and grandma and grandpa were getting sick um, from, from the virus, those kinds of things. I went down there to, to document the death and, and sort of the way it was manifesting in a socio-spiritual way, I guess you could say. And it was, it was horrific. Um, but I'm, I'm proud of the story that came out of that. Um, I think it's Rio Grande Valley ribbon by death is, is what uh, the piece ended up. And I've never sort of felt in any palpable way death hanging in a community. And that was one of those very strange experiences where it just felt like that you were in a place in a region where the entire sort of collective humanity was in, was in palpable mourning. Certainly a harrowing experience uh, for everyone. I want to touch on something that's a little more uplifting. Uh, as Christmas approached, the Washington Post asked its reporters to do something on stories about people making a connection. And you talked to someone who made one with astronomy. Uh, can you just fill us in on that? Yes, yes. So um, this is part of our Christmas anthology series that the Post does every year uh, around the holidays. And, and we have a different theme every year. And so our editor gave us the theme, I think it's five of us, connection uh, <laughs> in a year of immense disconnection and isolation of tell stories about uh, we could we, we were to interpret it you know as literally or as figuratively as, I, as we want it and I am fascinated by West Texas and by you know the, the stargaze stargazing that goes on out there with the McDonald Observatory and whatnot so I wanted to tap into that community plugged into the dark sky community was a very passionate uh, community of folks who are very concerned about light pollution. So Texas has uh, many, several sections of, of the state that are designated dark skies, which are places where you can see millions of stars and the, the Milky Way and, and have ordinances in place to limit the amount of light pollution. And so through that community, I got connected to Richard Acosta, who's a former TV news guy um, here in West Texas. And he got into photography, night sky photography. Uh, four years ago when his life was falling apart. And so I was able to tell a story about his connection, cosmic connection, if, if you will, uh, to, to the universe and, and what happened to him when he saw the Milky Way for the first time and how it transformed him. And him sort of suggesting to folks that if they're looking, they're feeling down or looking for some connection to beyond, go outside and look up. I, I'm curious off of that, I've, I've asked any reporter that we've had on, how do you come up with your story ideas? Oh, Lord have mercy. Um, <laughs> from all over the place, right? Sometimes I peruse, well, not so much anymore, but sometimes I would peruse like the message boards of uh, grocery stores. <laughs> I look to see like what we're talking about. I snoop in a lot on Facebook groups uh, to see like what folks are talking about. Uh, I drive around a lot. I actually get like, it's one of my therapy things that I drive around town. And often like I will come across random people who tell me, really interesting things. Uh, and like recently, I stopped by a warehouse that had hundreds of old newspaper, like they're not cans, but you know, the, the machine, newspaper machines where you would take the newspapers out. And he's like one of four manufacturers, uh, the only manufacturers left of newspaper boxes. And he 
because newspaper communities are sending them back because they don't need them anymore, which is super sad. Yes. Uh, it's incredibly sad, but he got a new idea. So he's working with Amazon to, uh, to make them into receptacle boxes and selling them like for $200 a pop. <laughs> <laughs> that, but that, that's great. That's a, a good way to, um, I guess, to teach a younger journalist how to come up with uh, story ideas. Certainly use all means uh, necessary to do it. And I find driving is very good just for opening the, the mind up. Uh, a little bit as well. Uh, all right, so two questions left. What advice would you have for a journalist who wants to take a leadership role in a prominent organization? I think you need to serve before you lead. And, and that means finding opportunities to help other people and, and sort of understand the business it from a, a as low a level as, as you, if you are, like wherever you are in the place in the organization, try to find places to, to serve other people, whether it's um, helping out with story idea development, whether it's uh, mentoring a, a younger journalist, uh, ask lots of questions about how operationally things work and don't think you're annoying because actually journalists are, we're somewhat egotistical. <laughs> so we love to be asked about what it is that we do and how we do it. Um, so, so once you have an idea of, of you know, what serving looks like and, and sort of derive the humility that comes from that, I think it's you, you prepare for that role in that way. And then you try to understand what it takes to get to the next level. Talk to lots of people, um, get lots of advice, be flexible, um, follow and study the people who you admire as leaders and take notes, right? Um, and, I, and then look for those opportunities and seize them when you there is an opening to do something more than what you're currently doing in your in your position right and and seek out leadership positions um you know i got tapped very very young to run the asian american journalists associations high school journalism camp and i i had i think i was 24 25 um and learned a lot made a lot of mistakes you know trying to lead an organization that seeks to develop high school journalists. <laughs> um, but it, I've learned so much that I've been able to bring that to every position since then and draw from those experiences. And I think that's, again, starting at a service level to start building towards a leadership level. And while we have you, we should ask you, uh, can you tell us more about the camp? Yeah, yeah. So the, uh, I am a longtime member of the Asian American Journalist Association. They actually gave me my first shot in journalism when I was 16 years old. I uh, had no idea what I wanted to do. And it was AJHJ camp in Washington that year that put me in touch with folks like Helen Thomas and Carl Bernstein and Carol Simpson. <laughs> uh, and I decided that summer that that was that journalism was going to be the, the work of my life. Uh, and, and my my passion. And so it has been ever since. And about, God, I don't know how many years later, I guess 10 years, less than 10 years later, uh, you know, they invited me back to to be co-director of the program with my colleague, Ben Bartenstein, who's also a graduate. And now J Camp is, a, as you mentioned at the top, is a five-day intensive, all-expense-paid program uh, focused on diversity and inclusion. We recruit kids from all over the country to achieve geographic, racial, ethnic, religious, uh, you know, sexual orientation, diversity. Um, in many cases, when we bring our kids together, it's the most diverse space they've ever been in in their entire lives. Um, and the idea is to make leaders out of them, to show them skills, right? You know, the journalism skills, that's part of it. They get to produce their own story uh, and, and listen and connect with uh, media leaders. But the idea is to build in them an awareness of what it is that journalism does for society, 
um, how important it is bringing those sensibilities that, you know, many of them end up do not become journalists. A good number, about a quarter of them end up becoming journalists. In fact, I think our J campers basically run the Harvard Crimson right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and that's all at what they do. But the idea is that if they won't become journalists or they become communications leaders or whatever, that they bring those sensibilities and those values of diversity and inclusion and ethics to whatever it is that they do. You, drop, you name dropped a couple of, of very important names uh, there. So I'm going to just tweak the last question that we typically ask slightly. Is there another journalism organization or person that you would like to salute? I would like to salute Kevin Merida of, uh, of ESPN. He, uh, he hired me basically at the Post. No, he was part of a coalition of people, but he was a managing editor at the time of the Post. We actually grew up in the same county, uh, suburban county of Washington, D.C., Prince George's County. And he's been a huge help to me in my career. When I was covering a hurricane and living in Puerto Rico, he came to Puerto Rico for a wedding and made time to sit down with me and talk through, you know, what was going on. Uh, he's a terrific person. He's been a speaker at JCAP for many years, uh, I think more than 10 years now, <laughs> talking to our students and uh, just a bang-up journalist, terrific person. Him and his wife, Donna Britt, have been a huge help to, to me and so many others uh, in, our, in our industry. So huge shout out to Kevin Merida. I have heard a lot of good things about him. Arlise Hernandez, thank you for taking the time to join us. Thank you for having me. Welcome to Journalism History, a podcast that rips out the pages of your history books to re-examine the stories you thought you knew and the ones you were never told. I'm Terry Finneman, and I research media coverage of women in politics. And I'm Nick Hershon, and I research the history of New York sports. And I'm Ken Ward, and I research the journalism history of the Great Plains and Rocky Mountains. Find the Journalism History Podcast at journalism-history.org slash podcast, and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Our release mentioned the idea of making a connection, which has a dual meaning here. There's the aspect of doing so in a mentoring fashion, older journalists connecting with younger journalists, white journalists connecting with black and brown journalists, or vice versa, in the interests of helping and teaching. And there's the aspect of doing so in terms of listening, acting, and as she said, giving space to better understand where someone is coming from. This is one that sticks out in my mind as it relates to the events of the past week in Washington, D.C., there are a lot of people in this country who have a long way to go when it comes to connecting in this manner. Journalists can do their part to set a good example for others to follow. You can learn more about the NAHJ at nahj.org. Our release also pointed out that the NAHJ was a good topic for our 21st episode, as the number 21 honors the great one, Latino baseball legend Roberto Clemente. Clemente was often frustrated by how he was overlooked by the media throughout his career. He is revered now as both a baseball hero and a humanitarian whose presence is certainly missed. The Journalism Salute is dedicated to the memory of Dr. Robert Cole, a journalism professor at my alma mater, Trenton State College, the College of New Jersey, for more than 30 years. On the next episode of the Journalism Salute, we'll be joined by Morgan Mullings, a reporter for the Bay State Banner, a black newspaper in Boston. She's part of the Report for America program that Aralise referenced. We hope you'll join us for that conversation. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at JournalismSalute at gmail.com.